I'm Glenn Burrows of New Foundation Farms. Welcome to our podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Caroline Mason, who is New Foundation Farms Director of Innovating Healthy Food Systems. We talk about her 17-year career in the global supply chain of fresh food that's taken her around the world and has resulted in a profound understanding, not just of her own purpose, but also of the need for systematic change of our food systems. In this episode, she brings a wealth of knowledge and experience of how the current system works and also tells us how she's uniquely positioned to help us build an alternative system. I'm Caroline Mason and I have been working in the food system for the last 17 years and I come from a farming background in Shropshire. So very much grown up in a pair of well- pair of wellies, farming soil, mud, cows, animals, horses, runs through my veins. It's in my DNA. I cannot be too far away from a tree for too long <laughs> um, because being in nature is, is really important to me. And that was something that I recognised very, very early on that just seemed very normal to me. And then as you move through life and you spend more time in urban environments and different types of dynamics, be it in this country or across the world, because I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of traveling, both on business and backpacking. I have always known that being close to nature to me and being in nature is really, really important for my whole um, embodied well-being and what helps to keep me just feeling good about life especially when things get bumpy which they do because we're humans and we live on this planet together so that's um probably my call to to nature and and my farming dna is probably where that um stems very very deeply from generationally and i have always been really fascinated by food so i guess the farming side that's very natural to me because that's what i grew up in And then when I moved through my educational period and then decided to go to university, I went to Harper Adams because I wanted to do a degree that had combined agriculture, food, marketing, sales, economics. And that's essentially what I did a degree in. And then when I had amazing time there, met friends for life and uh, lived the university dream. And then I was very clear towards the end of my degree that I absolutely wanted to go backpacking and I wanted to go backpacking around the world. But I wanted to have a year of working in industry first so that I had got a solid foundation from having my degree. I'd done a bit of work and then go backpacking. More likely to get a job when you came back as well. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That was me strategically wanting to set myself up for when I came back from um, traveling. So My first uh, job that I had was working for a sandwich manufacturer and I I was a process technologist. So I was doing food development activities for retailer clients. And one of the clients that I looked after was the Asda account. So I was coming up with sandwich fillings and sandwiches um, that would then go and get presented to Asda. And then I would go through the full process of the trialing of the products in the factory, the different ingredients that we would need, the costings that would be needed. And um, 
getting it up to Asda and then effectively going through the launching process of the product once it had been approved by Asda. So that was my first job um, working in manufacturing, which is a fascinating place to be in the in the hub of a manufacturing environment and interfacing into a retailer. And then so I did that for a year, which was always a plan, as I say. And then I backpacked around the world for a year and I went with a guy who I was actually at university with and we were together at the time. And we started off in India. Then we went to China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos and Thailand. Then we hopped across to Australia because both of us had got connections in Australia. Russell had worked on a dairy farm um, a few years before and I, which I forgot to say, when I graduated, I went out to Australia and worked on a cattle station. So in Australia, we, because we've been traveling for four or five months, we downed tools and worked on the dairy farm for three months, which was um, north of Melbourne. And then we went up to the cattle station where I had worked and we went there for a month. Then we carried on our journey around the world. We went to New Zealand Canada, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Argentina. Wow, you kind of did a lot. (laughs) It was a proper road trip. Um, And so we were both (laughs) 22, 23, 24, something like that. And it was just the most amazing adventure. And I came back and I was so clear that this food industry, that's where I want to be because I'm utterly fascinated with how food moves around the world, how it grows the community, the people, the agriculture, the the nature, the environment, the whole thing that has just been my addiction, I guess you could say, from a career perspective, but also my own choices that I make with how I service my own well-being. So that then kick-started my proper, properly getting stuck in, into my career. And I went into the fresh produce industry was where I started then because that just feeded my desire to learn more about how food moves around the world. And the fresh produce industry is such a global industry mm. with fascinating supply chains and growers all around the world growing different different food crops. The, the so I did a few. must be extraordinary of that when you start seeing the macro picture of that. The, yeah. the, the organizational complexity, I, I, I can't even imagine how, it, it must be super fascinating to get that kind of, that macro overview, because we only ever see little bits of it, but, um, you know, being so well-traveled and with your interest, you must actually have an understanding of, of how things move globally, really. Yeah, and I, and I, I love that, and I do, I find it fascinating, just the, whether we like it or not, the just-in-time system that we now have built and the diversity that we have in our supermarket shelves of the different things that travel from around the world that come to our supermarket shelves, nonetheless, it is fascinating. Sorry, can, can you explain that just-in-time? How everything moves. What, what's that mean, that just-in-time uh, phrase that you used? Um, okay, so for... Products that have got a short, a fresh product, like a, um, let's take something like a, in Kenya, they grow a lot of legumes. So by legumes, mm-hmm. I'm talking about peas, beans, runner beans. Yeah. Those products, once they're harvested, French, French have beans. got a really, oh, yeah. really short shelf life. So getting those picked, 
packed in a, in a pack house with people doing that um, into a cold supply chain so that those are kept refrigerated from Kenya all the way over to here, over to us here in the UK. They move from, they move in trucks to start off with off mm-hmm. the areas where they've been grown. Then they come to a pack house, which is cold chilled. Um, from there, they're then transported to Nairobi where they are then air freighted on the same airplane that people would be traveling on. Oh, no so, way. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. They just Almost sit like in the cargo. The <laughs> All right. They just sit in the cargo area of the planes, which is obviously chilled. Um, the challenging part of that cold chain um, is actually the where the cold chain can break down is those containers with the peas and beans in them sat on the runway waiting to go on to the onto the aeroplane that's not so helpful for shelf life and you see the consequences of that later down, on down the line. Right. when it doesn't hit the life um so goes on that plane then it comes to comes to here in the uk and is landed down in heathrow gatwick and then it's collected by lorries, cold chilled lorries, that is then taken to a distribution, a, a fresh produce distribution centre. And there are large um, produce organisations that will have big um, distribution centres with big, 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 huge buildings that are refrigerated. Mm-hmm. And that's where they store it. And then from there, it then goes on another lorry out to whichever their retailers that they're servicing. And there will be some that will go direct. It's good there's a lot of consolidating that has happened in the industry to help um, even make it even faster with how quickly we get it to the supermarket shelf. So from the likes of Gatwit, for example, it then might just go straight to a, a retailer um, distribution centre and then that retailer right. then sends it onto the supermarket. So that's even even at that scale, they've worked out that shortening, out the, chain, shortening the chain yes, and, and, um, and makes things a bit more efficient. Yes. Well, um, yeah, it, it speeds up the, it means that ultimately what you're wanting to achieve is the most freshest product possible for that customer when they're stood at the fixture wanting to buy something and they want it to look inviting, they want it to look fresh, they want it to look high quality. And with those short shelf life products that once they're picked off the plant, you've then got a small window to actually get them to where they need to be in the coldest environment possible. So they so- look great on the shelf. What kind of timescale are we talking about? For let's say, because we because you gave the example of of legumes from yeah. Kenya, and I know that a lot of French beans come from Kenya. Um, yes. So give me an example from when it's picked in the field until when it arrives on a supermarket shelf. Are we looking at three days, thirty six hours? Mm, yeah, what, I was just about of- to say. Yeah, so between that forty eight. Uh, hang on. 2448. Yeah. So roughly, if you said two days, maybe two and a half days, something like that. So 48 hours, I would say, would be the tops. That's extraordinary, isn't it? When you yeah. think about it, that really is yeah. incredible. Because you, you know, a person could do that, right? I mean, if, if you went on holiday to Kenya, you'd be home in, you know, 24 yes. hours with traveling either way, but you don't expect things to be able to do that. It's, it's quite amazing. <laughs> and that, as I say, I, I've used the word fascinating probably a few times here, but because it just, it blows my mind (laughs) to actually know that that is how stuff happens behind the scene and to have 
have to have been part of living and breathing it and understanding it. And you're like, yeah, this is what happens. And it's really cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, um, can I just sort of backstep a bit? Because you, your initial introduction, you said that you were really interested in food. But are you a sort of keen cook, eater, foodie kind of person? Or is it um, as well as being fascinated in the, the logistics of it? Yeah. Um, yes to both of those, Glenn. So food for me is around, and I have really, really gotten to appreciate this probably during the pandemic actually was when I really started to think about, um, I've, I've always been very conscious. Of, I love sport. So mm -hmm. being active is super, super important to me. So food is a fuel. <laughs> No, absolutely. Yeah. It's always been the case. Like I have got a huge appetite, but I burn a lot because I have horses and I play and do an awful lot of sports. So food for me is something that fuels me to do the things that I want to do and to have the calories to do that. But probably during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, and especially this last 12 months, I've actually been thinking about food in a different way around actually what are the right type of calories that I want to consume to look after my body's nutrition so that actually my body can keep on serving itself for however many decades ahead that I can live into my old age and be happy, mobile, and have keep doing really the good digestion. And my ultimate goal is like, how can I create the most diverse gut microbiome? You know, like that's my goal now. Like, and, and that's how, that's the lens that I tend to think about with food. So food for me, yes, I love cooking. Yes, I love baking. Am I a specific type of cook? No, it's just what's in the cupboard, what's going to nourish me? How quickly can I prepare it <laughs> most of the time? And then I want to do something that's a bit more adventurous or get cookbooks out then absolutely i will do so that tends to be what food now for me is how i choose to nourish my own body and that has that also really aligns to this challenge that we are setting ourselves in a good way that says how do we grow more nutritionally dense food right. and i guess being part of an organization like new foundation farms which is an incredible organization to be and business to be part of combined with my retailer background is making me think very differently about the food system that i want to be part of co-creating so that we can have more nutritionally dense food and while the retail machine and i call it a machine on purpose because it is an absolute mm -hmm. beast of a machine but it feeds yeah. us yeah and food food is looked at as a commodity because it's global and it's transient um, and food is just looked at, it's just part of what we do in the day to give us the energy that we need to do the things that we need to do and possibly isn't maybe thought much more beyond that because of the machine that is the retailer machine that has to have food on the shelf so that whatever it is that you want, it's there to service you and you choose at that any one point in time. Like that's what its role is in our society at the moment. Mm. And yes, yeah, so yeah. food products on those shelves that are going to be more nutritionally valuable to us than others. Um, I could really go down a rabbit hole on no, this no, one, no, Glenn, I mean, but you, I'll just you, pause. You, you pretty much preempted my next three questions there in, in, in a sense. <laughs> um, Something so you know, um, 
taking that as granted that that food is is not just a fascination of um of of you know it's not just a fascination of this huge supply chain but it's something that you fundamentally feel as well um do you not see because of your knowledge and you know we actually didn't get very far in your career history before we got sidetracked but because oh, no, of your knowledge of, of how of how this big machine works um do you struggle with seeing this system as being one that essentially operates in a way that could be construed as being psychopathic in that and i mean that not in a in a malevolent uh, deliberately malevolent way but more just in that it is operating without thought of um empathy and uh sustainability mm -hmm. and by its very nature the way it operates now because i i studied food i did a degree really similar to yours it sounds like but without the agriculture bit but it was leading me into the food industry and i learned an awful lot about hyper processed and ultra processed food so i was mm -hmm. learning how to make things like pringles and twiglets and i was learning how the food industry uh, balanced salts and sugars and umamis into yes. products to trick reward centers of the brain to yes. reduce satiety so that you compulsively overeat a packet of Pringles, for example. Yeah. And th this is all very, very known about. And I came out of it. I, I, I like you. I love food. I love to cook. I love to eat and I love to fuel myself correctly. And it put me off the industry completely, which is why I followed yeah. a different career path. Um, I, I, I thought this is hideous. Th this industry operates for nothing but profit. And, um, and and I really don't see, I, I, I didn't see that I had a position within that industry. Um, yeah. But, but I am, I think, at least 10 years older than you. So I think maybe the industry had a different slant back then. I, I don't think it was as evolved as it is now. How, how, do you, how do you balance that? Or do you see it as a problem? How do I square that circle? Yeah. <laughs> or is, is that circle yeah, exactly. Or is that why we're having this conversation? We, um, maybe oh, it's now it's a good time to backtrack into the rest of your career history and, and see what's yeah. led you to here. Yeah, okay. So I will come and answer that question because there is a very real personal reason as to why I haven't delved into that. Once you stop, you just can't pop the Pringle-type <laughs> industry because of the chemicals that are put on those crisps to make you keep on eating them. So there's a moral side to that answer, which I'll come to. But um, so from the fresh produce industry, and I've worked in that supply that, so if you think at a very basic level, a food, a linear food supply chain where you have your, your growers and the people who are growing the crops and the animals, it then comes to a supplier and a manufacturer that then turns whatever it is that's being grown into something that can then be consumed by us as human beings and then from that manufacturing stage it then goes to a retailer so essentially i have been part of that full end-to-end -end supply chain the farming side because that's my background that's my dna so very much connected to that working in the fresh produce industry and going and visiting growers and doing um work on the ground with growers and understanding the different varieties, understanding the challenges that they have and climatically with how and where they grow their crops and building really strong relationships with growers and understanding how important they are as part of this supply chain that we're talking about. To then being in manufacturing um, and um, while I was doing the traveling with the growers, I was also part of an organization that is a, is a food manufacturer as well. 
so being back in that factory environment that is then those oranges, apples, bananas, beans that arrive at that manufacturer and then have to go out the door to the retailer. So I was in that part of the supply chain within fresh produce for seven years. And then I had an opportunity to join Waitrose um, because when I was in the manufacturing side, one of the accounts that I looked after was the Waitrose account. So I had built a really strong relationship with the Waitrose technical team. And what we mean by a technical team is the team that is there to be responsible for the food safety, the food quality, the relationship that you have with the grower and how that food is grown. So you are very much that person that makes sure that we've got really good quality. It's being grown safely. Um, and that we're working with really good growers and varieties to make sure that we've got the best of the best in terms of that um, that fresh produce item. And so I was like, yes, I'd love to go and work for Waitrose. And there was a few reasons for that. I liked them as people, so the people who I interacted with, and I liked the way that they spoke to us as a supplier and Mm -hmm. spoke to us like we were people and that we were part of this conversation that happens through this supply chain. At the time, um, there there were other retailers that I would be interfacing with that it wasn't like that. And it was very, very transactional um, and very um, confrontational and very much top down um, and was not collaborative particularly. So the call to Waitrose was just an obvious fit for me on a values perspective. I, I value, I've, I really liked them as an organisation and what they stood for. And I thought, yep, yeah, I'll move down to Berkshire. I've got some friends down there. <laughs> so that then took me to Waitrose. And I actually started my first role was working in Bracknell, which is where the head office is in the retail distribution centre. So I was in the RDC, as they call it, where all the stuff comes in, gets put onto um, big trolleys that then goes back out into the re, um, the Waitrose stores. So I was there checking the quality against a specification. Wow. For, for fresh foods? Um, yeah, or- for fresh yeah. foods. Yeah, all so fresh. So, um, so this is ingredients fruit, rather veg- than, yeah, yeah, so- than ready made products kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it was a combination. So there was cut flowers and pot plants, so horticulture. Then there was going back to your prepared, the prepared things that we mentioned, like peas, beans, legumes that have had an element of. um, Very minimal processing. Very minimal processing. Yes. And then you've got things that haven't had anything done to them. Apples, pears, bananas. They are what they are. So that was my remit that I looked after. Are they they not uh, even wax coated or anything? Are they just, are they literally off the tree in a, are, are things like that and there's nothing done to them at all? So things like um, lemons, um, shellac is what they put on it, which is an organic um, uh, substance that basically makes it look shiny. Okay. So it looks a bit more appealing to the eye and can just help preserve with the shelf life as well. But okay, everything so, so, else... So it's pretty, it, it, fresh produce is pretty much as it comes off the tree. Yeah, as it comes, um, things like apples, for example, when it comes off the tree in the pack house, uh, sorry, it comes off the tree and then goes to a pack house at source, be it New Zealand, South Africa, 
um, will then go through like a big, massive water bath to just wash, wash. the wash wash okay. the apple, and then um, and then off they go <laughs> on their journey to here in the UK. <laughs> wow, um, we can, we buy apples from South Africa. Yeah, well, we can. It depends on the variety. Um, if we're right. wanting to have some of the varieties that they grow over there, but. Um, because we can't, we don't grow apples all year round here. And even with the apples that we do grow and then we store, they won't keep us going for a full 12 months. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I sidetracked you there. Um, it's okay. You're, you're in it's the, okay. Yeah, retail distribution center. Yeah. So I was in an RDC. And then from that role, I did that. I, so I worked a night shift, a morning shift. I did different shifts doing that. Um, and then I moved into the properly into the head office as a technologist. So then I got to be the person who is properly interfacing with the supplier. And I got my category areas that I was responsible for as that technical manager representing the Waitrose brand, looking after all of the technical requirements, the quality requirements and the agronomy requirements as well. And by agronomy, what we mean is working back with the growers on, I want to say the pesticides, the chemicals, the different um, things that we have in our armory <laughs> to enable us to grow some of those types of crops that I was looking after. So that, again, was still fresh produce. So I did vegetables, I did fruit, I did different categories within that. Um, and I also did a stint, I did a maternity stint on protein, which happened to be the year that we had the horse meat scandal. So that was oh, wow. 2012 into 2013. Um, which Gosh, I had 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's wow. 10 years ago. So that was fascinating itself because I then got to work with Waitrose has a, a dedicated um, meat supply chain. They work with one processor called Dovecoat and they've got their own aligned farmers. And then it's the same on the other proteins, pork, um, eggs, chicken. So that was fascinating because that then took me back into manufacturing again, but I also learned different food safety and different um, quality challenges. And it kind of took me back a little bit to my farming roots as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, so I'd been at Waitress for five years and then the calling came to move back home to Shropshire. And I always knew that that would happen one day. <laughs> um, but back then, Glenn, how old was I? 30 yeah 31 30 yeah 30 31 something like that and i was working flat out with waitrose loving that i'd got two of my horses with me down in berkshire and i was rowing competitively for reading rowing club oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and i basically burnt myself out <laughs> but when you were talking about the different shifts earlier i i, I was thinking that's got to be quite brutal yeah yeah but I guess I just, I don't know. I was living in the countryside with friends. I got my horses with me. I decided to take up rowing as a new sport and went all in with that. Um, and then I had enough of Waitrose is probably the simplest way of saying it. I had, it's an amazing organization to be part of, but it is a partnership and it is a, has a constitution. And so you are accountable to operating within that partnership, um, values, ethics, morals. Um, mm -hmm. And I always knew I would have to want to go back home to Shropshire. And I thought I, I, I need to get out of the South. 
I couldn't cope with the people, um, the motorway, the commuting, just ah, all of the busyness, everything. No, it, it is um, busy down here. Yeah. yeah. And so my parents said, and I, I said to mum and dad, I, I need to come home. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm burnt out down here. I need uh-huh. to come home. Um, I said, but I have no idea what next in terms of my career. Because I thought, I can't, there isn't any other retailer I want to go and work for. I work for Waitrose. Why would you want to go anywhere else? Um, so mum and dad said, well, it's okay, Caroline, you can come home, bring your horses home. It will be fine. So I came home and took a couple of months to actually reconnect at home and, and with myself. And then an opportunity came up at Co-op in their head office in Manchester, in the technical team, in the fresh produce team. And I thought, oh, God, going back on to commuting again and to get to Manchester from Shropshire means going on the train. It's about a three hour round trip on the train. And so I did that for six months and then was asked to stay and to be permanent and to actually lead the fresh produce and horticulture team as that technical manager. So did that for a few years. And then I also got gifted protein. So I was looking after the fresh produce and horticulture technical team. And then um, the director of our department said, Caroline, would you also take on protein? So that meant um, eggs, fish, uh, chicken, pork, beef, lamb, everything apart from dairy. And by dairy, I'm meaning milk, butter, cheese, etc. So we did that um, for a year or so. And then an opportunity came up to take on the head of agriculture, fisheries and aquaculture role. And I jumped at that chance and was very fortunate to get that role and delighted to have got that role. And so that was the first time that I was properly back to being able to put my wellies on as part of my day job. (laughs) Um, So I did that role for three and a half years. And that was, I had a team of experts that had looked after different species within that um, agriculture and fisheries um, sector. And we were very much there as the people who built the relationships with our farmers and with our fishermen. Um, So the fisheries and aquaculture industry, you have farmed salmon and then you have wild captured fish like tuna, sea bass, um, some of those more interesting, or no, Salmon is still interesting, but I mean, coming from a natural environment, coming from the oceans. So, and I, I love that role and to be in a role where I was able to work with farmers to try to see how we can move forward to being more thoughtful. And I use that word on purpose with how we look at the environment, but yet how we also produce food at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could go down a rabbit hole on this one, Glenn, but I'll just take, a, I'll just sort of stop there and then say, and then my role got made redundant last year because Coat did a big organisational restructure, and four hundred roles were made redundant, and one of them were mine. Was mine? Oh wow! Okay, so that wasn't sort of you. Uh, you otherwise you would have sort of carried on. No, actually, interestingly, <laughs> I don't okay. know where this recording's going, but this is like. <laughs> So we'll just um, temper things accordingly. Um, But I had already recognized last year, and this probably goes back to actually what you were talking about earlier with those ambient goods, the likes of the crisps, the chocolates, etc. So I've never had a desire to go and work into those sectors, both, well, from a technical quality perspective, because it, it was so far away from nature for me. 
I can't touch it, feel it, smell it. It's not real. It hasn't yeah. come. Of course, it's come from the soil in some form or, or other, but it's been highly processed. And so that, that just didn't sit right with, um, for me. And I had no desire to go and work in that spe- those specific sectors. So I've always been, I get, you kind of call it on the primary side, right, fresh produce, right, right. protein, um, those types of products. Um, but I, uh, last year was already recognizing that I have had enough of being in this machine and it is um, taking my soul away from me and and I'm just a small cog on part of what is a really, really, really big machine that is trying to do the right thing. Um, but just the way that retail can work and this I think every retailer actually goes through these types of phases, if I'm honest. Um, You can have a vision and a purpose and a direction of travel, and then you've got all of these people at different levels and different layers who have then got their responsibilities within it. Um, Mm -hmm. And you will have some who will inevitably wanting to do good things, be it by the environment, and then you'll have a lot of people who are driven by KPIs and performance. And and I thought, and and so... it was really starting to impact on my fulfillment and my own personal well-being. And I thought, I've got to get out of this. And I know what that feeling's like because I had it when I was down at Waitrose. Um, and I probably had it a few other times in my life. And I'm like, no, nope, <laughs> I got to get out of this. But I didn't know where next. And then I had a business coach um, and she was amazing. And I still do have some coaching from her. Um, and we were going to start working on my CV. And then the announcement came that Kurt was doing a big restructure and redundancies. And my role was one of the ones that had been made redundant. And it was literally like the angels wow. went, pop, there you go, Caroline, so you're free. The universe free. aligned for you. Yeah. The universe aligned. Amazing. You're free. Now go fly. Go make a difference using everything. And this feels like where my calling is now, Glenn. Somebody who's been in that machine and understands its dynamics, its commercial dynamics, its um, pain points and challenges that it has because it is such a cons- the system that we've created is such a consequence of why our planet is in such some destruction as part of that food system challenge that we face. But it also is one of the biggest actors that can actually help shift and and move things forward that is a much more um, harmonious way of producing food. And like that's another rabbit hole that I could easily go down in. But fundamentally, I feel like my calling is that somebody who understands those dynamics, but also recognizes that we have to do things in a different way to have a much more sustaining food system. Therefore, how how can I help and be somebody that bridges some of that challenge together, but ultimately keeps us moving forward in a way that means we are making better choices with where we where we put our time and efforts into solving the problems that we need to solve within within the parameters that an organization has set itself, rather than doing so much but doing none of it well. Let's just get more focused on doing a few things, but doing them really well and having somebody who can actually help facilitate to move that forward and make it happen. And that's where the 17 years of working in the system 
that end-to-end system has given me this wonderful grounding and understanding of how it operates and how it moves and how it lives and how it breathes and how is it how is it functions and my style is not one that's going to come in and tell you what you must do my style is very much one of empowering the people because there are people who care of course there are but they're constrained by whatever box it is that kpi box that they've been put into who need profits and KPIs. And yeah, are, all of those letters. Own voice, you weren't able to really make the change you wanted to make from within inside the machine. And no. it sounds like you're coming to a realization that you needed to create an alternative machine. Is, is that about right? <laughs> or at least yeah, it is. to create an alternative machine. And I had no idea what it was that was next that I needed to do because when you've been in something and it's burnt you out and you've been bruised from it, but you've learned so much from it and you're so grateful for everything, everything that it has taught you and the networks it has given you, which is what, especially the head of agri role um, did for me. Um, And I was burnt out. Like I was properly burnt out and I knew I needed to get away to reconnect with myself on the inside to figure out what, what is my purpose? What do I want? What are my dreams? And I'd never really asked myself that question before. Mm. Um, but I had spoken to people in my network, um, and different people had said, Caroline, will you come and help us? Are you going to set up a business as a consultant? And I was like, but we're doing what? (laughs) I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was that people were needing that I could, I could then be of service to them. And I had a meeting with, um, the MD of co-op. His name is Matt Hood and I've always got on really, really well with him. And he's always been a real great advocate for the work that I did while I was at, at co-op. Um, and I got 15 minutes with him before I finished at co-op. And he said, Caroline, there are about 10 people in the UK that have your skill set. I'm like, what? But what is that? <laughs> I couldn't ask him that question. I didn't ask him that question because I only had 15 minutes and I had other stuff. But essentially, that was the question that I was left with. It's like, huh? <laughs> well, this is a guy who's probably on three grand an hour, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. What, 10 people do what I do? No. But what is that that I do? I don't know. So I, I had a very I similar to- thing moving moving out of being a freelance photographer to doing the work that I've done in the last four years. And and it, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because you, you kind of have a – you almost have to change your identity in some way. You, your sense of who you think you are is is much harder to shift than and – it, and it's often at odds with what other people think you are. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's – what it is for me is actually finding who you who you really are, who you were born as when you were that child. Before and that, that person, she's been with me. She's been with me the whole time, but I have just got disconnected from her. Um, and so to help me figure out what next, even before the redundancy, because I already recognize that I have got to get out of this machine, but I need to go somewhere and do something because I need to reconnect with myself before I can figure out what next. So I'd already booked to go to Costa Rica and to volunteer working on a wildlife conservation program in a coastal rainforest. So that meant that my deadline for leaving co-op was bought. I had, 
was even shorter. So I had like four weeks to close down my world at co-op because that plane was going and I was going to be getting on it. <laughs> so the whole month of September, I was in Costa Rica and it was the best thing that I could have had already in the diary and the best thing that could have happened because I'd set myself what I wanted to achieve was to meet new people, do new things, to be immersed in nature and to have noiselessness. And by noiselessness, for me, what that meant was um, quiet, meditating, listening to the sounds of the ocean, listening to the sounds of when you're in the rainforest and it's it's light, it's colours, it's um, whole ecosystem dynamic that for me is noiselessness because there's none of the white noise of modern life that I just had to get away from. And that, Glenn, fast forward to where we are today here in April, um, I am now way more sure of my innate embodied who I am and what I'm here to do and to serve at this point in time for the next 10 odd years. Like I, I'm getting more crystallized in that because the people who are coming into my life are also, also asking these same type of questions, but they're also really quite grounded in who they are as well. So that is why I, I, I genuinely use the word to be of service for uh, to others because I'm so committed to the fact that our food system has got to shift and change, but it needs people who, who can speak the right type of business language to CEOs, to teams, to all of those leadership levels. It's not just talking to the top because the plates that they are spinning are very different to the plates that others are spinning across those different dynamics in, in an organization. And as much as I could sit here and preach and say, well, it's just got to change. Retailers are bad. And just fold my arms and say, well, that's someone else's job to sort. Well, actually, we need people who can practically help that very difficult task of how do we, how do we grow food in a much more sustaining way. And New Foundation Farms is absolutely um, challenging and pioneering a different way of thinking about how we can grow our food to sustain ourselves. And we absolutely need that. We need to have those pioneers who are going to do that and set that there is an alternative, there is a different way that we can do this in a much more sustaining way. And we also need to find ways that means that others can come as well. And I think that's where I talk about that, that bridge um, and where I'm realizing that my skills as a coach, as a facilitator, as somebody who's got expertise can can help can help practically figure out how, how do we get from where we are there to where we know that we need to be. And I can't do that on my own. Of course I can't. But there are others that that um can see this as well as an opportunity, a very exciting opportunity. I, there's something you said in there that really, really hit the nail on the head with, with me as well. It, it's the fact that the organisation, great mug, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the, the organisation that we're 
just so fortunate to be a part of is some is one that we're not a five acre permaculture small holding growing veg outside of the system this is an assembly of people who can change the system and within yeah. the foundation when you said there are people there who understand both ends of the spectrum but can talk to ceos can talk to multi-million pound fundraisers and work out why this is a viable business to not operate yeah. in that psychopathic way that is purely for profit but also not to not to be some sort of hippie idealist we're realizing the need to generate profit and to provide um, yeah, yeah. and to provide profit that isn't just monetary but to provide profit that is uh, a nature-based profit as well and a human-based profit and health human health is a profit as much as money yeah. is a profit and yeah. all, all of these things are all tied together and and that that's what you know that's what i'm so impressed by is is not that it's not what we're doing but the scale at which yeah. the intended implementation of this plan is happening yeah. and it was really yeah. interesting because you know you and i were together and we went and looked at the land that we're going to be um fingers crossed we, we can't say where it is yet but hopefully hopefully taking over and it seemed like a really really big space um you know i you know to me whatever it was 248 acres it looked really big yeah. and when you start thinking about the type of systems that new foundation are wanting to do I, i'm used to seeing them in like five acre patches of little you know like uh, small holdings with people shoveling wood chip around and stuff like that and uh, <laughs> you know and, and raised beds and uh, you know um and 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 it, and it seems so big and then marcus sent me a google map zoom in to the two yeah. acres from the planet and then when you see it like that it's a it's a speck it's nothing it's a <laughs> tiny little pink outline on a few fields and then i was like oh my god this is still when you look at you know even the county of oxfordshire and you look at the land around mm. our proposed site you think this is this is tiny and everything else is oh, farmland yes. this is so just the beginning but yeah it's it's the change it, it, it's the change that can be uh not proof of concept but proof of application as marcus put it absolutely um, yeah and that it's not just a talking shop and there's a lot of that that does happen yeah yeah because we feel good when we're sharing and we're talking about stuff which is all well and good but we have to get braver and bolder about actually turning conversation into action that is action that is purposeful and going to help us on our, our overarching quest of having a more sustaining planet. Um, but it is action that we are, we are engaging with different people with different expertise. And then we're all taking that commitment to do, to do stuff, to do things. And that for me, um, God, the amount of meetings and conversations that I've been in 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 the retailer space inside those dynamics that's like that that's what's so dearly dearly hard is to actually get that traction to actually get things done and I was plenty of time when I thought that I wasn't, but when I look back, there was so much that I and my team that we got done with other people, okay. So, yeah, um, so, so the big machine is capable of change. It's just, but, but I think in some ways there were no, the big machine can't see any alternative to itself. Um, no, because there and, isn't anything big enough yet to disrupt it. Aha. Okay. 
So and, it means and it will only something. Be disrupted if there is a what an economical an economic reason to disrupt, if, do you think that's the best way of forcing the change, or because a moral reason probably because of the size of it and the economics involved, it's very hard to have an eco moral reason for yeah. something that exists and continues to generate profit to change, because when an organisation reaches a certain size, it does start to behave psychopathically. Yes, yes, it does. So I guess to answer that question, Glenn, I have to fast forward myself to 10 to 15 years from now when we have a different food system and new foundation farms will absolutely be leading the way in how we can grow and produce our food. Um, that is is nature abundant as well as nutritionally dense for servicing our own well-being. So that has to be of big enough scale that means that more people are choosing to go and buy from wherever that food is available, which means that they are less reliant on a retailer that we know today. Yeah. So when I, when I talk about this, there has to be a different competition. There has to be something that goes, hang on a minute. Where are these guys come from? So um, let just- <laughs> Okay, we seem to be losing customers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, we still have to, we have a country of people that we need to feed. Yeah. So it, it, I probably still come back to, and this is where I feel like my role of service is, we have to acknowledge that we still need to feed people on, on, on scale. And therefore, within that current system that we have, what we have to keep on moving forward at being better but doing less and doing it better. And I think that is the hardest thing with all of this, Glenn, because we are so driven by consumption yeah. and choice that that has then caused, what's the word that you use? That's psychotic. Psychopathic kind of. Yeah, psychopathic. And, yeah. and, and in the truth. It's feeding the drug. Yeah. It's feeding the drug, the drug of addiction of choice. Yeah. And the drug of addiction of, of, of profit yeah. As a result of choice. So something has to get us off that drug as human beings from a consumption perspective, the Pringles, the crisps, the um, intensively reared chicken, all of those things that we've, that's what's evolved over the last 50 years since the Second World War. Um, there is that whole behavioral shift consumptionally that has to happen that, that also forces and shifts retailers to be a different type of model none of that stuff is going to happen overnight <laughs> but um no and and one of the interesting things is looking at the kind of predictions the economic predictions that uh marcus and mark have done and that phenomenal spreadsheet of of you know of looking know. of looking at you know because at the moment you know the business that i was involved in um previously to new foundation farms is a startup called the ethical butcher and we were buying um meats from regenerative agriculture and it was expensive it was expensive yeah. because it was less intensive uh the animals were living a lot longer they were being treated a lot better. They needed more space, but ironically, they needed less intervention and less care because yes, they yes, were look, looking yes. after themselves. But because it was niche, because the farmers realized they were taking a risk, um, they were, um, and even with the shortened supply chain. So we, we were operating 
And I think this is a nice segue into maybe um, getting you to explain the difference between supply chain links between traditional supermarket and new foundation and this idea of hyperlocal. But what we're trying to do with the Ethical Butcher was be a direct single point link between the farmer and the consumer. Um, and until, until I got involved in that business, I didn't really think that it was very different to that. But we would buy a whole animal from a farmer, let's say it was a cow, it was taken to the abattoir, we'd pay the farmer, the animal would come to us, we would butcher it into the various cuts and send it out to the consumer. And in many ways, that supply chain, it's about as short as it can get without buying directly from the farmer. Um, and when, it was only when I started to understand the business a bit more about how things work at Smithfield Market and the fact that Smithfield Market is taking in meats from all over Europe, if not the world, and yeah. how then it's part of the bigger system that you were describing. Um, yeah. that, how, that it made me realize how, even though those meats were cheaper, um, it meant that everybody was losing out because the supply chain, every point of the supply chain, when, when the supply chain gets more complex, every point of that needs to make a margin. And what that means at the very, very end is that the farmer's getting paid very, very little. So it's not that I think we were expensive. I think our meats were actually a true reflection of what it cost to produce the food. Mm. And that money was going direct back to the farmer. And it made me realize that farmers in the conventional system are not winning in mm. this. They must be getting paid absolutely nothing. So in, in a roundabout way, how, how, does, how does that all change in this New Foundation has this idea of a hyper-localized system with, with as few points in the supply chain as possible. How, how does that benefit consumer and how does it benefit farmer? Well, it benefits the consumer because if it's being grown in a way um, if we said more extensive, i.e. grass-fed, so it's just working with the great green stuff that the sun grows for us and photosynthesizes, um, and then cows eat that grass, and that sustains them and nourishes them, enables them to make milk, make milk, sorry, make milk, and um, um, make be a, a meat animal at the end of its life. So we are benefiting as people because we're getting something that has just had a more natural life. Um, so there's less ingredients that are coming in to actually producing that animal in the first instance. It's just being produced on the, on what nature is actually providing it. Yeah, low um, intervention, you could call it. Low intervention um, needs less veterinary support potentially because it's not going to get ill in the same way. Um, so it's just had it's just had a it's just had a more natural life i guess is probably mm -hmm. the simplest way of like it would have been back pre um pre-agriculture yeah pre-agriculture yeah, yeah. pre-second world war and and yeah. first world war um how we shorten the retailer so what new foundation farms is able to do because of the model itself is because we are working with the blank canvas of the land and therefore what the land can give us so we're asking that different question of the land we're saying okay land what what can you provide with us and what are the different 
um, animals and crops that we can grow on that land at any one point in time, working with the season and how the season changes, that means we're producing food that we can all eat and consume and really enjoy. And at the same time, we are we are working with the resources of the that the land has to give to us and also restoring what it is that we take out from that land. So we're never actually depleting the land of any more than what it has to give. But we also recognize that because we've done so much depleting of that land, we have to rebuild that land up so that it can get back to its own natural balance. And that that doesn't happen overnight. That takes time and dedication and expertise and knowledge and science to help with that. But we will be getting food along the way. It just won't be the abundance food that we know that we will be able to get ultimately when that system gets back in balance in five years, say, for example. And then you've got the the retail supply chain side that is desperately wanting to do more of that kind of stuff. But how you transition and how you do that on volume is really hard. But at the same time, Glenn, there is a shift that is going on across agriculture more broadly that is being driven by us coming out of the EU and therefore now having to create our own policies as a country, um, our own environmental policies, and us recognising that we do have to treat our land in a different way to grow food for us. So we are definitely in a transition phase of where we have got plenty of farmers out there who are thinking about their land in a different way to be able to grow food because they recognise that we do need to change. And then you've got those that are like, uh, I'm just going to carry on doing what I'm doing because that feels safe and familiar and I'll worry about the future when I need to worry about the future. And then you've got people in the middle who are sort of looking to see what others are doing that are being the pioneering, knowing that they need to change, but that will move as and when they feel safe that they can do and that they can invest back in their business and they've got that financial security. So that in itself is going to mean that agriculturally stuff is going to shift over the next few years and then however government policies support it on a fiscal perspective in terms of subsidies and and finances because there's been more invested into environmental good as opposed to just productivity. And then it's how farmers almost can understand the cost of doing that and that gets translated through the supply chain and ultimately holds the retailer in a way, I guess you could say, to account with how how it's then costed and valued. And consumers ultimately have to want to choose, should they wish to, to spend a little bit more, but knowing that what they are spending on, if you take it beef or chicken, has been grown and produced in a in a much more environmentally in a, in a much more nature conscious way yeah. is more nutritionally dense therefore i'm doing good for my body yeah so more nutrients for the equivalent amount of calories because you know yeah. I, I think it's it's true to say as a nation we're um overfed and undernourished um yeah in fact a lot of people who who are severely overfed um have severe nutrition deficiencies which has come from yes. eating hyper palatable, high, ultra processed foods, which, which are, yes. as we know, very high in calories, very easy to over consume, but, but very low in nutrients. And I, I had a, I had a really interesting talk with, um, a government minister at Groundswell and, um, um, and my, you know, we're talking about subsidies, which, which I know very little about. I have very little, I have very little farming knowledge really, but my, um, my thought was really that probably the, the best 
um, subsidies that anyone could offer, that the government could offer, would be based on nutrient density. Um, because uh, nutrient-dense food comes from a natural environment and there's no real way of, of untricking that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, th I guess we, we need to kind of wrap up quite soon. Um, as you see us going forward, um, what do you, you know, what, what you've kind of told us why you're super excited about being involved with New Foundation, but what, what are kind of next steps for you within New Foundation? What's on your sort of immediate to-do list? Well, I'm very grateful that I'm part of New Foundation, the New Foundation Farm team, and my role within that, I am a member of the board, which means that I get to be part of working with that board team on bringing the expertise that I have and the knowledge that I have around call it the supply chain food system, um, mm -hmm. the design of that current food system. That's the expertise that I bring, but also a desire and a passion to know that there, we have to do things differently. So for me, my role where I see it within New Foundation Farms is um, somebody who can keep on going, it's okay that others aren't in this space yet. <laughs> um, it's okay that that is the case, but also getting curious enough, enough to go to embrace and challenge ourselves with our own creativity because we have a business model that we know can grow food in a much more sustaining, regenerative way. Now, operationally, we have to make that happen. <laughs> so where I also bring expertise in is my operational background, not just understanding understanding farming and the dynamics of farming and, and the land, but also that fundamental movement of a product, a service that can then get onto a shelf that people can go and buy. Um, that whole 17 odd years of working in that food system grower, manufacturer, retailer is where I'm able to bring real practical operational expertise. And I'm still very, very much within that network as well and work very closely with the, the retailers here in the UK. And I do now as part of my Seeds to Thrive business. So I'm still very much in that machine that we've spoken about. Um, so I'm live to the challenges that that those organizations are also um facing too excellent and before because i know you've got to get off in a minute quickly tell us what seeds for change is you've got to get a plug oh, in seeds for <laughs> <laughs> hey. so seeds to change is um what we're about is working with organizations and teams at all levels to help and support them through coaching and facilitation of moving their climate and sustainability commitments and ambitions forward. And what I often see is if you have somebody who comes in externally and they might have a system or they might have a computer software, which is all well and good, and that, that can also help move things forward. But what's desperately needing is somebody who can empower teams that goes, yeah, we get we've got this vision over there, but how are we going to get there? How are we going to turn this vision into where we are here today and have somebody who can coach us, who can help us get the right tools together and the right people together. Mm -hmm. That means we can turn that problem into a very clear project plan. And then we've got that person who's going to support us 
and hold us to account to make sure we are moving forward on it and to help us with the challenges that we'll face along the way. And that's wow. what Seize to Thrive is about. So it's not just it's not just going in and doing a bit of sustainability consulting. It's way more than no. that. It, it, it's facilitation. That it it's not just the the what. It's the how and the why and and, yeah. and handholding along the way. Yes, very much so, Glenn. And like you know, I will be the if I believe in the vision of the organisation and I and I only work with clients and organisations whose vision and purpose I truly believe in and feel like yes, I can help and make a difference here. Um, I am their biggest cheerleader. And I will give 110% to that organization, to those people, to that team, to the CEO, to the teams, to the different leadership teams. I am their biggest champion, but I'll also call it out (laughs) if I'm like, hey, I'm their moral conscience as well. Yeah, excellent. Well, I look forward to um, seeing how that evolves as well as um, what we're involved in. Um, I know you need to get off. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and um, I, I've really enjoyed this chat. And I think we've got a really good insight into kind of who you are and what you bring. And um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it unfolding.